Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Hoop Dreams, which is a very, very well-known 1994 documentary um, that ever since I heard about it, I've been very keen to see it. I think, I think it's because I first heard that Roger Ebert had called it one of the greatest American documentaries. And it's just, you know, that it was, it, it, there was a real effusive level of praise for this film. And it's just come up on Mubi. Um, so uh, we watched it. And I've got to tell you, I was... I was captivated, and by the end, I was blown away. I thought this is one of the greatest documentaries I've ever seen. Okay, so tell me what you liked about it. So what it is, it's about two young black American kids, uh, boys live in Chicago, and they both have dreams of making it to the NBA. And they come from two separate... They don't know each other, at least at the start. They come from two separate, underprivileged, poor black neighbourhoods in Chicago, and then a talent scout spots them playing basketball you know with their friends on playground and takes them to an upmarket school St Joseph High School in Westchester which is suburban it's privileged and there's all this talk at the start the two kids are saying you know this is not going to be like the schools I go to there's going to be white kids there they're not there aren't white kids at my school the facilities are much higher standard all that kind of stuff it's a private school as well and the film follows them for about five years as they are trained and eventually apply to colleges. And all the time, all the meanwhile, they're kind of balancing work and school, uh, uh, the balancing work, school, life, being coached and trying to make it to professional level basketball. And it's this, it's this amazing portrait of life in America. You know, we've talked before about state of the nation films, and this is 25 years old, but it, you know, it has the feel of, at the time, and it has so much relevance today, this is a state-of-the-nation film for America. And what I really loved about it was that it is so complex, but it never nods at anything. It never, it, or, or it, it doesn't wink at you. It doesn't say, oh, you should notice this, you should notice this, about kind of race relations, about class relations. It just pictures it, observes it, and lets you notice what you want to notice and draw the, the connections you want to draw. And I think it's... It's got a masterfully light touch. Okay, light touch is not the way that I would have put it. Um, But I agree with you about everything else. It's a portrait of America then. It's a portrait of America now. It actually makes what's happening now in Minneapolis like completely understandable. You see in the film, you know, all the structural problems with America, the poverty, the class, the race... You know, there's a beautiful moment where, um, you know, Arthur's family goes uh, through the University of uh, Illinois and they're walking on campus and the mother says, my God, this is like another world. And the child says, this is beyond another world. And all it is, is a university campus, right? Like you're not on the moon, you're not on Mars, right? But, you know, I thought it was a, a very revelatory moment of these huge discrepancies. I found the film really heartbreaking because, you know, especially mm. the character of Arthur, you see you see this kind of boy, right? I think when it's, the film starts, he's probably 13 or something. He looks he looks like a young boy, right? The, the, I think they're about 14, 15 when it begins. Okay. That was my sense. But Arthur looks younger, yeah, uh, mm. at the beginning mm. of the film. And kind of, you know, and he's in a loving family. That's the other thing. 
you know, that I think is important to underline, right? So their families love them. Uh, and certainly you see the mother's sacrifice uh, incredibly for them. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, these are kids who have to deal with poverty, with uh, drugs. Uh, I actually thought that some of the scenes in the, in, at the beginning of the film in the basketball court, you know, they are the visual vocabulary of The Wire. This is where it's from. Yeah, kind mm. of, you know, the drug dealers on the estate in the corners. Yeah, kind of, you know, and again, this is almost like kind of seemingly peripheral to the story as you're watching it, but absolutely central to it kind of as it unfolds, right? So here's a young kind of vulnerable, shy boy, really. Uh, you know, initially it seems, with a, you know, with a loving family and then you're told that the family breaks up, that the father has been hitting on the mother, you know, uh, that uh, he's hooked on drugs, that he's been to jail, you know, that the mother uh, has had to make do with no money from the social for three months. So their electricity is cut off, their gas is cut off, right? So, you know, this child learning to be a ball player with all of the families and the community's hopes and dreams kind of placed on these very frail little shoulders. Right, you know, has to attempt to do that whilst all of the rest of the stuff is going on in his life. And actually, all of the rest of the stuff, you know, one of the things that, that moved me and makes me angry, really, is that um, you have these slogans. Oh, it's almost like, you know, fucking Auschwitz. It reminds me of Auschwitz, right? <laughs> like, you know, work, work will set you free. Mm. So, you know, in the high school, they have something like that, work hard and whatever, right? You know, so you have all of these slogans, which places all the responsibility on these poor young boys, whereas actually the problems are systemic and structural, you know, and kind of, there might be a miracle and you might kind of, you know, get out of them really, but all the odds are stacked against you really. Yeah. And you see that everywhere. Yeah. The, the character of, I, I say character is a real bloke, but the, um, the coach at St. Joseph's is a fascinating character and um, particularly his relationship with William is fascinating too because William is the character... I want to stop saying character because these are real people. Char mm. uh, William is the young lad, the boy, whose story I found the more tragic and his ends the more tragically. He's the one who kind of loses love falls out of love with basketball because of what he's been through at the school and the way he's been treated, and particularly his relationship with the coach, who is a real kind of hard-ass. And he has... Um, I mean, he's a real Catholic. Like, at the end, he says, he says, you should have enjoyed the punishment. You know, when I made you run 50 laps or whatever. Like, that's such a Catholic, <laughs> you know, I the punishment. Him. Yeah, he's awful. <laughs> and, and he doesn't really... See, there, there are so many scenes where... Or so many interactions, and particularly that one at the end where they're kind of saying goodbye, where what they're saying is indicative of what they're not saying to yes. each other. He basically says, have you enjoyed your time at the school here? Because he's graduating. Have you enjoyed your time at the school? Don't say anything that you don't believe. And he says, yeah, I've enjoyed it for the last four years. And it's just the complete opposite is true. You know, And it's all about what they're not saying. I think it's communicated very well because, you know, there's this passive thing where William is smiling but he's not answering right or yeah, yeah. yeah or he say well you know kind of 
I'm going to I'm going to go into communications to learn how to reject the letter of funding that you're going to send me or the fundraiser that you're going to send me. I you know that there's a clear um, dislike actually. Yeah. yeah. It's it's so heartbreaking but you know I mean at some points you kind of want them to stand up and 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 exclaim about the kind of the unfair treatment that they're getting and and it so much of it makes me think that I think some of it is very specific to America in terms of the school system and the way that school and sports are intertwined and your money. you know your yeah exactly it's all about money, money is the and, issue. and your scholarship is is based on if you're good at basketball. That's how these kids get into these schools, um, and of course, it's what the the it's what they're relying on. And the parents are you know t- so devoted to to this, and they so they so they so need um, the kid to to be successful at basketball to keep the scholarship and to get to a university and so on and so forth. And it's and that, which is something that's only got worse and worse, especially with if you look at what the NCAA does now, which is the national. Collegiate Athletics Association, I think. College sports, particularly basketball and, and American football these days, there's so much money involved and there are so many... Fa- I don't know, you know, it's bizarre to me that like the biggest stadium... You get like 100,000-seater stadiums for college sports in the States, you know, not professional sports. And you you have kind of uh, video games about them, video game endorsements that, that these kids are put on the cover of video games and they don't get any money for it. And this is the kind of crucial thing because the NCAA has has caps on how much they can get paid. They say, well, we're providing an education, you know, and it's just bollocks. The education is not there to help them. The education is in things like Swahili, you know, and they're there to make people money in in the in the most crude, disgusting way. And actually, there's one point in, in this film where Spike Lee's speaking to the kids and he's supposed to be giving, you get, you know, he's been invited to this school to give them a kind of pep talk. And what he tells them is, you're going to go and make white people money, basically. Yeah. You know, which is kind of <laughs> wonderfully bracing. I wish I'd stayed with it longer because it's about five seconds and then he goes. Yeah, it's a brilliant moment. But actually, um, I think, you know, one of the things that's so interesting between the relationship between William and the coach is that as soon as he has the accident and his knee goes, Mm. right, um, you see, first of all, you know, the coach is completely uninterested in him or his feelings or even his bloody knee. All he's interested in is in winning the championship, right? Because presumably winning the championship is, you know, good for his own career. So he pushes the kid to get back into the game way too early so he basically ruins his career again you know the filmmakers don't tell you this they don't go into a close-up or anything right but it's just that passive aggressive dialogue of oh it's your decision you have to make your own decision right Mm. but if you don't play now you can't play until next year yeah so you can really see the coach manipulating the kid into playing too early right which ends up resulting in in him losing what made him great to begin with. And actually, because he, he loses that, he loses the coach's affection and concern. I mean, I, he's just a thing to the coach, right? And that thingness is actually so revealing of, you know, American capitalism in general, but actually also race relations, right? Yeah, well, there are points in the film where I was really reminded, and this is what I'm saying when I, when I use the phrase light touch, and I think it is, you know, I can understand 
it, it's not light subject material, but I think it's handled with a light touch because it never presses these points. It never narrates them. It never says, oh, you should be noticing this here. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, and I know what you're saying. I just think light touch is the wrong term. I mean, the film allows you to discover these things. It doesn't coerce you into discovering, yeah? Yeah, okay, so we understand each other. Yeah, we understand each other, but kind of light touch for me indicates you know, that it's kind of playful and superficial. And it's not, really. It's kind of, you know, it, it's just a film that allows you the freedom to discover things on your own. It has very little voiceover. And when it appears, it appears at interesting moments, yeah? You know, so it's... Yeah, that's right. You know, so it does. the, the voiceover doesn't tell you what to think about the things that you're watching. It just kind of gives you information. Yeah, and um, you're talking about kind of William's knee and his body there and how, how the kind of failure of his body makes the coach lose interest in him, makes him lose all this value. Really made me think of um, uh, like slave auctions. Yes. Um, and there's also a moment where actually they, uh, there are scouts from different schools and colleges observing kids kind of essentially being paraded around and they and they make judgments on their bodies you know he's got a good body he already looks like a pro that sort of thing yeah. and it's not it's not excessively racial in the fact that there are white kids there as well who are being judged in the same way but obviously basketball is predominantly african-american and all of the um all of the scouts that you see are white and kind of representing these big institutions so it had definitely has that feeling and it also made me think of like um in football, which is the sport I'm most familiar with, soccer for any Americans who might be listening, when a new black player, a young black player who's very good emerges, they're always compared to another black player. So like when Anthony Martial, who's a French guy who plays for Man United now, when he emerged, he was compared to Thierry Henry, who is a great French black winger. And you know Romelu Lukaku, who's a, a huge, muscly black forward, he was compared to Didier Drogba, who again has similar properties, and that, that almost never happens with white players or South American players. I mean, maybe Messi was the new Maradona, but that's about it. It always happens with black players, and it's it's a valuing of the physicality of their body that that kind of me- means that we feel like we're allowed to say that. You know, mm-hmm. he has the same body as him, and we could, and and we we remove anything else about them, which we wouldn't yeah. really dream of doing with white people. The film demonstrates how the only people with power are white. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like in the poor high school, the counselors can help, they can advise. Yeah, they're constantly reminding, bring me those papers or whatever. But actually, they can't do anything for them, right? So, you know, the people who can get them summer jobs, who can get them scholarships, who can scout them, yeah, they're all white. So mm. you you have kind of, you know, this enormous kind of structural kind of discrepancy that that the film just allows you to see, really. Uh, you know, and which kind of demarcates. So so you have these families who are on the one hand inadvertently creating problems for the children, uh, putting way too many expectations on them but also kind of offering them love and support, right? One of the things that I felt kind of very sad and sorry, and, you know, I wish that they'd made another film, was Arthur's father, you know? Because yes. kind of, you know, you, you, you think what drove that man 
to, to drugs, right? Because as the film begins, you know, he's kind of, you know, it, it feels like a stable family and he seems really sweet, the father, and nice, right? And you think kind of, you know, what, what happens, you know, that he ends up with drugs and in jail. And yeah, so a lot of that is obviously structural. I think he lost, he loses his job. Yeah, in the middle of all of this. Um, it was very early on, he says he's lost various jobs. He can't, yeah. Yeah, um, can't seem to kind of hold on down. So, but nonetheless, he, he's creating problems for his child and his child resents him, yeah, kind of, and doesn't believe him. And, you know, a typical kind of druggy thing where, you know, he might be very well-meaning. He, you know, he, you get the feeling that he definitely believes what he says, but, you know, they've, they've failed you too many times. You don't believe what they're going to say. They're, you know, you'll probably get high and not show up to your game or whatever again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, you know, the film allows you to see all of this, all, the, all of these kind of complex relationships amongst people, and, and all, all done through a kind of, this is something you pointed out earlier, through a kind of not speaking, right? It's mm. all observational. It's all through the body language of the, ch- of the kid, you know, or how he looks away when his father tells him how much he loves him. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of eye rolling in that, in the moment I'm thinking about, but actually for most of the film, there's not even that. There's just kind of this, this looking away or this looking down or this not answering, right? So yeah. kind of all of these dynamics are kind of conveyed through these spaces of, of interaction. All of those moments are really beautifully chosen, I think. And I think it's um, interesting to note that the film was, amongst its many awards, it was also nominated for the Academy Award for Best Editing. Yeah. And you can feel that because that not only is it in individual cuts where occasionally there's that one jump cut or I suppose it's a match cut between the uh, kind of white college bus and the black school bus and the one is calm and no one's talking and and then on the black bus it's boisterous and there's movements and so on and you, and you just get this immediate sense of the two different worlds but also it's in the in the selection of moments it's a three hour long film but it's a film that was built out of something like 250 hours of footage mm. and you know there's so many ways you can imagine of telling this story or these stories, and the moments that they choose are the ones that ask further questions about what's going on or ask to be interpreted. And that's why I think it's beautifully kind of narrated in that way, because what what I really love about the way it's told is that fundamentally it is never not about these two kids. That's what it's always about. It's about these kids and who they are and who their families are and what their lives are and what their aspirations are. And it's always about them and how they are reacting to what's around them and so on. And everything else that you can then read into it or take out of it is important and it's contextual, but it's it's all surrounding material, you know? It's never the focus to say this, this and this. It's not the focus, but it contributes to the focus. So, for example, you know, the film makes me very angry, really, because the structural oppression is so vivid and real and unfair and unjust. I mean, you know, for one high school to prevent a child from graduating, yeah, because there's a bill to be paid and they won't release the grades until the bill is paid and, you know, and so on. And... I mean, it's just outrageous. It's kind of, you know, I, I find it astonishing. I mean, it's not the kid's fault, right? So why should a child's future be compromised because of something like that that he had nothing to do with in a way, right? But then also you see the conditions of the schools and you think like, fuck America, right? 
kind of, you know, how ground down is like this system that these kids have to learn in an environment like that. I mean, when the English teacher says, well, we have to mix five, six, seven, eight grades here because we just don't have the money to give any more English classes. I mean, that's its own kind of structural oppression, right? Kind of, hmm. you know, black schools and black neighborhoods kind of can't afford the teachers and the classes and so on. I mean, you know, even though it was also interesting because a lot of those teachers were white as well, right? So, you know, the structural kind of, you know, systems of oppression are just kind of so outrageous and unfair and unjust. And I mean, again, just to relate it to the news now, kind of, you know, you so understand where all of this is coming from, right? Um, you know, all of these years of all of that, when the child says, you know, that, I mean, he's trying to play, you know, he's trying to play basketball and he has to go home and kind of be accosted at gunpoint, right? And then you realize that, you know, the mother, it happened to the mother as well, and it happened to the father. And, you know, and uh, if, if you read the, the wiki page, which I did uh, uh, just be, before we talked, you know, to try to remember the names, you, you know, one of the brothers was shot, right? Yeah, kind of, it's mm -hmm. like this thing of, you know, black lives matter. Well, they don't, right? I mean, you know, and kind of, you know, in the film, in a way, <clears throat> you know, what it shows you is the struggle to survive. So you come out with really good feelings about so many things, the sense of community, the mother struggles, you know, the love that you see uh, in the film, you know, but then you also see kind of, you know, all that stacked against them. And it's, it's really, it's both kind of moving and 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 it makes you angry. Yeah. One of the things I also found moving, uh, found most moving, was the individual pressure that was put on each of these kids. Um, so it's it's not just the pressures you mentioned of the communities around them and their families and kind of the hopes of a community are based on this kid could be good enough to make it to the pros. Yeah, there's that, um, but there's also the pressure of what they actually have to do at school yeah. you know what like it i mean you're thinking these kids are 15 16 17 years old and they're working harder they've got a full kind of they've got a workload at school they've got to keep their grades up they've also got to work hard to get into the team and 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 that's where you know the kind of hopes of the future lie these kids can't afford lives even there's one there's talk, there's talk of one friend that one of the kids has outside of school that's it. Like these kids live at school. They are the amount of pressure being put on a sixteen-year-old kid for the future. Like every every kid, even yeah, you know, when I was sixteen, you know, there was pressure about you got to get the grades because otherwise you won't get into a good university. And if you don't get into a good university, you'll have a shit future and so on and so forth. Every kid is kind of told that, but these kids are really living it in a way that most kids don't. And the the kind of psychological toll that has to take on you long term is is hideous. It made me feel so awful for them. I thought, you know, being in a basketball team or a team of any kind, a sports team of any kind, is my worst nightmare. You know, so I, I, I thought, you know, there's so many good things about, about being in a team, about playing in a team, right? You know, that sense of, like, kind of belonging to a team and being supportive of a team and being one of a group yeah, that everybody has to do their bit in order to achieve something. That's the ideal view of sport, right? And actually, I, I think there's a book called something like what, you know, what 
what football teaches you about life or something like that that goes yeah, on. Yeah, I, I think I gave you that book. Okay. Oh, no, you bought you me that book, in fact. It was a philosophy book you <laughs> bought at the Tate, I think. <laughs> so, um, but what this, what this shows you is almost like the opposite. You know, it's the bullying and, you know, the... Um, the 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 being coerced into things and the being manipulated into things and actually what you end up seeing is for you know the coaches on one side but also with the family on the other what they do or what they have done is they rob these children of their childhoods you know mm. so like it's constantly telling them oh you know these are your decisions you've got to make your decision yeah, but basically, if you don't make this decision, the family will starve or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that bit where the father says, you know, we'll go into hawk for you. And, and he looks like, what? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, have, you don't even have the means of getting into hawk, right? Yeah. And also, the film has a, a way of picking out moments that are, you know, this moment could change everything. And they're, and they're moments in games where... Um, like in the playoffs at the end of the season, for instance, if, you know, with five seconds to go, if uh, William can make the shot, then the game carries on or they win and they get to go through, and he misses the shot and it's this thing of it's over. And maybe the film is overdoing it at that point. You don't really know, but it could definitely communicate the, the kind of feeling of if one thing goes wrong at this point in your life, every domino falls yes. and you won't have a future. Yes. You know, and again, that kind of communicates the, the, the pressure these kids are under. Although I did then find it, maybe this is why I found it kind of so elating when Arthur's team, towards the end of the film, starts doing really well and they're underdogs in the state championships and they start beating much bigger teams. And, you know, for you go, finally, there's some joy in these kids' lives, you know, even if it's just one of them. I think it's also interesting that. Obviously, they're, they're, they're following these kids' lives as they happen. So you can't say, like, you can't make a plot straight away because you're following real life. Um, but even though the kids start off in quite similar positions, they're not identical. And William, it seems early on, at least to me, was starting off in a slightly better position, particularly when the woman from, I think, Encyclopedia Britannica yeah. announced that she and her husband were going to personally pay for his tuition so he didn't have to worry about paying for his schooling, whereas Arthur doesn't have that assurance. And Arthur ultimately... Um, I can't remember if he's kicked out or he drops out. Or is he the one... He, he is, is it Arthur who leaves because he can't afford the $1,800 for the transcript? That's right. <clears throat> and so he ends up going to a, uh, a public school again. Let's elaborate on that, because actually that is, a, you know, that is crucially important to the film. So you have two kids, and they're both from similar poor neighbourhoods, so different neighbourhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them has a full scholarship to this private school, right? The other one thinks he has a private scholarship, but the family hasn't read the fine print, right? And actually, the scholarship only covers X amount. So when, you know, at the end of the first semester or second semester, the family can't pay the money owed, the kid is kicked out, you know? And there's an argument about that because they say, well, had the kid been good enough at basketball, they would have paid. You know, there wouldn't have been a problem with the, with the scholarship. So there's also a commentary, basically, that, you know, because he's not good enough, he's got to pay the tuition. And then, all of a sudden, this has terrible consequences for him and his family because he loses a semester of high school. The family, all of a sudden, becomes in debt and they're all on minimum wage jobs, etc. So the film unfolds from, you know, that basic and important difference that one kid is going to private school 
the other one is going to an inner city school yeah and they're both playing basketball but in completely different leagues so to speak yeah yeah but what i kind of expected i suppose was that this would then follow a trajectory of william being the kid who has the scholarship um is on an upward trajectory and things are going to go well for him and arthur things are going to go much worse for him he won't be able to afford things or drop out and so on and so forth and to an extent that's what happens but actually kind of life is much more complicated i, I mean because it's not like saying this kid's life will be easy and this one's will be hard you kind of go no they're both going to be hard but one will be harder than the other for these reasons mm. um but by the time you get to the end of the film it's not exactly that they've switched but william is the one who has completely fallen out of love with the game whereas arthur is still harboring hopes of getting to the nba and he's the one who's won those championships with the with the kind of lower ranked team of the public school. For me, one of the things that um, is so damning in the film, you know, and, and I think this is where the, the name comes in. It's it's hope dreams, but what you really see is a whole community, really, and it's a real dead end community. It's kind of it's people who haven't got a chance, you know. When the mother says, oh, to live to be 18 on his 18th birthday, like, isn't that fabulous? I, the expectation is that most kids from those places don't make it to 18. Yeah, they get killed or, you know, they, they, they have problems with drugs. And actually, all the things that you see around it are an indication of, like, the structural unfairness of the whole thing. So, you know, these people have no jobs or they get a job in Pizza Hut for $3 an hour, right? I mean... It's just like they have they have no possibilities. So what the film is telling you is that basically you need a miracle. I, you need to be mm. one of the very best players in America to even have a chance at kind of a life, you know, as a black person, right? Like, I mean, it's just kind of extraordinary when you see it that way, really. And all these little things of the father losing the job, going to jail, his best friend, you know, becoming a dealer and, and landing in jail, you know, him getting mugged, right, trying to resist drugs, you know, the brother not being able to get a job for years, you know, the them having to work the summer at Pizza Hut for $3 an hour and kind of how lucky they are, you know, I, I mean, it builds a picture. The mother being so overwhelmed with joy, you know, that she took a course in becoming like a nursing assistant, you know, I mean, it kind of, all of this builds a picture and also indicates the level right you know so success for these people is making it to being like a nursing assistant right i mean that's about you know as good as it gets and in the meantime this crime and poverty and death yeah and the gas being cut off i mean it's it's it does build a, a cumulatively mm. you know it's an extremely damning picture of america yeah Although I will say that the moment that you pick up on where the mother talks about, um, you know, and he, he made it to 18, not everyone makes it to 18 years old. Uh, I noted that as well, but I I immediately thought that strikes me actually as a moment that, um, because it's, that's not the only thing she says. She said other things before that in the same shot and, they've, and the camera's still rolling and then she says that and that struck me as, you know, they've left the silence there and she, she feels the need to fill it and she actually was... Um, basically trying to come up with something to say to the camera. And well, you know, I know what you mean about the thing of... It is is absolutely true that a lot of kids uh, that kind of underprivileged fall into crime and 
uh, fall into un- unfortunate circumstances and don't make it to 18 years old. I totally get that. But I also feel that in that specific moment, there was a feeling of, but she is just trying, trying to search for a thing to say. And I felt that was actually kind of unfair to put in the film. Oh, well, I don't agree. And actually, you know, I might be more agreeable to your point of view had you not seen what you see later, which is, you know, the the child kind of, you know, shocked, having been mugged, uh, you know, at gunpoint, again, kind of trying to think through his mind whether actually he was the problem, that he deal with it well. He said, you know, I had to calm myself, right, like, you know, to answer the mugger. You know, you think he basically, he feels he escaped with his life, you know, yeah, by his fingernails, yeah. really. You know, so so the mother statement, I might have read that differently. Had you then not had all the other incidents that kind of are there in the margins of this film, you know? I get what you mean. I just think in that moment, it's it's not what she says, because what she says is absolutely true, but it's in the way that she says it. To me, says this... I didn't, I didn't feel that moment was quite justified. It just it felt like an off moment to me from the perspective of the choice to put that in the film. Well, you see, to me... I read it differently, and um, and I welcomed it because you know what you what you do see is you know this love and this joy, yeah, and so on in the midst of you know what are incredibly low expectations, you know, of life for you and and indeed for your child. I mean, imagine kind of you know a, a parent who's just glad that their child lives to 18. I mean, you you know, you normally get that reaction if your child has a fatal disease, you know, and is expected to live to 12 or something. Then when they make their 18th, you're overjoyed, right? But actually, I think you felt all of that with the mother, and I didn't think that it was just, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, let's, let's kind of, you know, put the knife in here, you know, or let's make a, a statement. Because actually, I don't think the mother's mind works that way, you know. No, I don't uh, think it's. I don't think the mother's mind works that way at all. Like I say, I think what she's doing is trying to find another thing to fill the fill the space with. Because that's what people do with silences; they try and fill them. And I think they've let her do that. And I think it's. I think it's unjustified on the part of the filmmakers to have included it because I think it's not quite as. It just just felt like a, a an off note to me. Um, I want to ask you, it's, this is a nearly three-hour film. Were you bored at any point? No, I wasn't bored at all. I mean, it's a very long film. I must say I did pause it because it's so long, you know, that um, I needed to make breakfast and I needed to have a bath. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like kind of, you know, the, the morning was uh, almost over and I hadn't done any of those things. So I did have to pause it for several moments. But actually, I paused it to do things you know, mm-hmm. that I needed to do rather than because I was bored. I mean, I, actually, I found it, like, kind of really captivating throughout. There were some things that I thought were just beautiful, really. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but the soundtrack has kind of a jazz sax. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So you get kind of moments of music, really, and they're both really beautiful and also really sad, Yeah. Kind of, it, mm. it it adds kind of a, a, a tinge of melancholy to the whole thing. The other thing that I noticed that again is unspoken, nobody mentions it in the film, but it's how so many of the men in the film, the black men in the film, clearly suffer from a depression that is never spoken about, right? Mm. You know, so William's brother who also was a great player and who actually went to Marquette University 
or something, but dropped out or, you know, couldn't make it or something. Or maybe that was the father. Yeah, it's like these whole families' hopes lie on how, how the kids do in, in basketball. But, you know, once they fail, you see, like, you know, the way they speak, the way they carry themselves, the, their, their fatness, right? You know, you, you can all see the signs of depression, right? Like kind of these, these people now no longer know what to do with their lives and they're sad, right? Kind of, and actually they tell you, there are little things that they say, you know, before everybody used to be my friend. Now, you know, nobody talks to me or, yeah, kind of. Yeah. So there are in this, in these indications about how their inability to, to make it in basketball, which means that they now have to continue to live in this ghetto, you know, is like, uh, I mean, they can barely get out of bed, really. And so that is like one of the things that is very beautiful about the film is the way that it shows you all of this without telling you. There were times as well where I thought about something that you said before, which is about how, I forget which book this was from, it was something that you said about how if you are the um, minority group, in a society, if you're meaning a minority of the power in a society, then you have to be constantly cognizant of how the majority thinks and works yes. and operates because you are required to negotiate around them and not the other way yeah. around. That's and there's right. an awful lot of that in this. And what I particularly thought of was then it led me to the converse, which is that when the privileged white people in this film who, who hold all the power and hold the keys to success... Um, when they are faced with the black people uh, who are kind of who are asking them for opportunities and so on, and they say no, or they say you know we're kicking you out of school, for instance, for the eighteen hundred dollar fee, um, you know that well. If we take that bit specifically, when the guy, this kind of accountant who works for the school, says it's this eighteen hundred dollars and you need to pay it, or we can't release the transcript, but I hope we can find out some way of of you know, coming to an agreement, so on and so forth. Um, he doesn't say it as viciously as that. What, the way he says it is sheepish, and he doesn't look at them in the eye, and you know yeah. he kind of and it speaks to real discomfort in him. So what I what I'm getting at is the converse of the minority having to be aware of the majority is the majority has to be unaware of the minority to get through the day because when yeah. they are confronted with the way they live, it kills them, and they have to be able to ignore it. Also, and this is, you know, again, you know, sorry to be relating all of this to current affairs at the moment, but you can't benefit from a system which you not only know is exploitative, but that you are a key mechanism in that exploitation. So, you know, there's also this denial. I mean, you know, that person at the school, the accountant says, I'm here to help you, but he doesn't look at them. Right. And actually, you know, there's such a clear discomfort. The whole scene is beautiful because, you know, the parents are overly grateful. Yeah. That their son is, you know, finally the transcript is going to be released and they're obsequious. Right. Kind of, you know, they're bowing down to this guy who's embarrassed about the whole situation because he clearly knows how unfair it is. Right. Mm. And yet he's saying things like, I'm here to help you where, you know, kind of really they just want the money. Right. So. Um, you know, this thing about, it's actually what you, the, the, the thing is from uh, Harold Innes from Empire and Communications, you know, where 
kind of, you know, people at the center of empire, they don't need to know anything about anybody else because they are the center of empire. Whereas if you're on the margins of empire, if you're in a colonial situation, you know, then actually you have to know your culture, your language, and also you have to know the language of, you know, the master, right? And kind of mm -hmm. this is clearly what you see in this film, right? Because, you know, the discomfort of being in another world, they, they constantly say we don't, you know, we don't speak like them. We need to learn how to speak. When, and actually they are being judged. So all these white people is like, you know, kind of part of educating them is actually kind of, you know, educating them in their own world, whereas they never feel the need, you know, to kind of learn how to speak like black people or, you know, how black communities work, right? It's, it is always mm. one way, right? Uh, and it instantly kind of situates the power relations in those ways. I think all I want to say as a conclusion is that, you know, what the film points out is a whole system, and it's a system of exploitation, yeah, mm -hmm. where even people's dreams are commodified, right? Kind of, you know, the only way that kind of, you know, people can have something as little, you know, as a dream of a, a, a decent life, you know, a university education or just a good education is by a miracle, really. And actually, they can only receive that miracle yeah, if they are exploitable. It's only if you're completely commodified and, and if you are of use to somebody, you know, kind of making money, yeah, that the miracle happens for you. And that miracle, you know, could be, you know, millions of dollars if you make it as a star, but actually it could just be as basic as getting, a, you know, a good education. So, you know, there's a whole sector of the United States who can only ever dream of getting, you know, a good education through a miracle and that miracle can only happen, you know, in that kind of capitalism when somebody can exploit what they have been trained to do, yeah, at the price of their childhood and their life. Yeah, so kind of people are gambling with their childhood and their life for something that should be a basic fundamental right for everybody, which is education. Yeah, and in America, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know... I suppose the pursuit of happiness here in the long term means you don't have a life and you don't really have any liberty either. Hmm. Though I don't know. I mean, there was something, there was a moment when they were in church, you know, and um, I, I don't know if it was a phrase of the mother or it was part of a song, yeah, about being free um, that I also found moving and inspiring because I think even in slavery you know, you can find a way of being free. And actually what you see in this film, which is very touching and moving, and one of the things that makes it great, is that in spite of all of this structural oppression, right, and in spite of the things that people do to survive, there is a sense also in which, yeah, people are also free. Yeah, mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, they find kind of comfort through the church or through their communities or through their relations or through acceptance, right? Yeah, but, yeah, so so it's kind of like this struggle of attempting to be free and free to love, certainly, yeah, in a system that cages you in, you know, and squeezes mm. you out and sucks you dry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's an amazing piece of work, and I was... I was I was absolutely thrilled by it, and I was also thrilled by how beautiful it looked. Um, it's a it's a film that was initially supposed to be made for television, so it was shot on a uh, beta tape, 
Uh, and then, you know, as kind of time went on, they realised this is a much bigger project. And they ended up shooting it over several years. It made it into this huge film. Um, but it's all shot in this 4-3 aspect ratio TV tape, you know, and, and it's been restored. And this is the restored version that's on Mubi. And uh, as much as you can restore, you know, analogue tape, it looks amazing. You know, it has that real kind of you're standing right there feel to it. Hmm. You know, it's pretty vibrant. Yes. And evocative. Hugely recommended. I think it's just astonishing. Yes, I, I do as well. Uh, it's on movie for the next month. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, and don't be daunted by the length. No, no, it's excellent. You won't, you won't be able to stop watching it. Yeah. Unless you have something to do, like make a cup of tea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.